Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here this morning. Make sure that I get this turned on appropriately. I'm going to ask if you're turning your Bibles actually to 1 Corinthians 11. In light of the fact that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper today, I think this is a, an appropriate passage to start with. Let me obviously give greetings from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. It is, as Pastor said, it, this is actually my first year there. So uh, we're celebrating uh, our anniversary of being in Michigan. I actually made the move from uh, the wonderful state of Wisconsin. And we lived out in the country. We had a, a wonderful little home out in the country. Every morning we could look out and there were deer in the backyard. Uh, every evening they would come out to graze and we'd watch the sun come up. And I told my wife that we were moving to Detroit, obviously through a, a period of prayer. And she looked at me and she said, what are you thinking? And, uh, and we were excited about the opportunity, but it was fun actually to share with others what the Lord was doing. I, I shared it with my unsaved barber who I'd been sharing the gospel with. And, uh, when, I, and when I told him, he actually stopped cutting my hair, came around, looked at me and said, you're moving to Detroit, you're leaving Wisconsin, and he acted as if this was a foreign country. I'll simply say it's been a place that we have rejoiced in the last year to see God's good work. And it is a, a place where it's exciting to see what God is doing here and to be able to serve both at inner city, at the seminary, but also to establish new friendships and to establish uh, the opportunity to minister in churches like this one. So it is a joy to be here very much so. 1 Corinthians 11 is a passage that we're very familiar with as it relates to the Lord's Supper. My intent this morning is not really to develop with fullness um, uh, this particular passage, but I really want to just key on one thought, and then we're going to move on to a, a second passage from here. We're aware of the fact that Paul is giving instructions as Christ gave him instructions as it relates to the conducting of this memorial service, which we call communion or the Lord's Supper. There's a reiteration from uh, uh, the words of Christ through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Paul what happened that night before the Lord passed away or before he was crucified. We actually pick it up in verse 23 where it says, For I received from the Lord which, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then we have instructions that follow in verse 27. And therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner should be guilty of the body and of the blood of Christ. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. All right, let's stop for a moment there. And, and quick reminders for us of the process that we go through prior to actually partaking of the Lord's Supper. That process usually involves kind of a fourfold look. first one is noted as far as the passage is concerned and is noted even within the communion table this morning 
that we partake of the elements as a remembrance of that which took place in the past. This do in remembrance of me. So one of the, the looks that we have as we partake of the Lord's Supper is a look backward. We're looking at the death of Jesus Christ, that which he sacrificed on the tree, uh, the shedding of his blood at that point and the recognition that his body was given on behalf of ours. And so one of our our looks is a backward look. A second look that Paul mentions here by way of warning is a look inward. We are to evaluate our lives, and we are to make sure that we are taking of the bread and of the cup in a manner that is worthy. This would suggest two different elements. First, it would suggest that we are first and foremost members of the body of Christ. When I speak of that, I'm speaking of that point in time where we acknowledge that we were sinners. We acknowledge that there was nothing that we could do via our good works or via religious ritual to in any way merit the grace of God. God's grace by His very definition is unmerited favor. It is not that which we work for. And we acknowledge that all of our goodness, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. And in light of that, we are in need of another's righteousness so that we can enter into the very presence of God. And so we accept Christ as our Savior. We acknowledge that we are sinners. We acknowledge that His death paid the price for our sin and purchased for us a place in heaven. So our examination begins with the recognition that we are members of the body of Christ that we have accepted Christ as our Savior and we are trusting in Him. But I would suggest that this inward look goes beyond just a recognition of our placement within the body of Christ, but is a further understanding or a further inspection as we allow the Holy Spirit to navigate through our hearts and to see if there be any sin that is bound within our lives that is yet unconfessed. We would not approach the table with with unconfessed sin within our lives that we're holding on to and at one um, moment rejoice in the death of Christ which forgave us of those sins while at the very same time embrace those sins outside of of this, uh, this meeting place. So this inspection is that which we look back upon our salvation but we also look presently at our current relationship with Jesus Christ. So there's a backward glance. There's an inward glance. I would suggest that there's a third glance, and the third glance really deals with our relationship one with another. We recognize that as Paul was writing this particular passage, he was addressing a specific issue within the church at Corinth. And the specific issue that he was addressing was that there was divisions within the body. Now, those divisions had manifold manifestations to them. You can go all the way back to chapter 1 and you begin to see some of the issues that Paul was dealing with. But specifically, as it relates to the Lord's Supper, there seemingly were two groups at the church of Corinth. One which had some wealth, and they were meeting together, and in their celebration of the Lord's Supper, they made it a festival. They made it a feast, which included eating and drinking. As a part of that, there was fellowship amongst themselves to the exclusion of those that did not have the same status, financial status. And thus others came late to the Lord's Supper, obviously being celebrated within the homes on Sunday evenings. 
And some felt excluded from the body. Others were celebrating it in a way that was riotous and inappropriate. One of Paul's instructions here within 1 Corinthians is that this examination from an internal perspective include an external examination of their relationship one with another. Was there unity within the body? If there was not unity within the body, then they were taking of the cup in a manner which is unworthy. I think that would still be true today. How could one partake of the cup and partake of the bread, uh, with the, which is representative of the body of Christ, and at the same time have someone sitting on the right side of the congregation unwilling to speak to someone sitting on the left side of the congregation? That's not reflective of the unity of the body. So there are three glances that we are to take before we, w- before we would partake of the Lord's Supper. A glance backwards toward the death of Christ, a glance inward as it relates to our relationship with Christ, a, a glance external as it relates to our relationship with one another. Then there's a fourth one. And the fourth one is the one that often is overlooked. It's those final words that we read in verse 26, where it simply says this, we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's not just a glance backwards and inwards and externally or around, there's also a glance forward. And ultimately what we are doing is we're proclaiming the Lord's death, but there's a time frame for this. And the time frame for this is until the Lord comes. We know even in the establishment of the Lord's Supper, when Christ was addressing his disciples, he communicated to them that he would not partake in this celebration again until he came unto his kingdom. That was the time that we look forward to. So as we meet together today, I'd like to just allow our minds to meditate for a moment on the recognition of Christ's coming. This is what we long for. And we long for it with what I will call joyous solemnity. Joyous because our Savior comes. Solemn because the context in which He comes. Why don't you turn back with me to the book of the Revelation, chapter 19. The book of the Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation 19, we have a, really, a narrative passage. A a story being told to us about this event, which we've defined as the second coming of Christ. Let's stop for a moment and think about the totality of the book of the Revelation. Sometimes when we think of the book of the Revelation... Our response to it is one of, if I can phrase it this way, curious enjoyment. For within the book of the Revelation, what oftentimes is pointed out or what's highlighted is the recognition that it communicates events that will be forthcoming. We would define many of those events as within the time frame of the tribulation. So we have the the, the, uh, unlocking of seals or the breaking of seals as they would represent judgments. We have the sounding of trumpets, as they would recommend judgments, and the pouring out of vials or bowls. And all of these are are events which will be literal events which will take place as Christ pours out His judgment upon earth. Now, unfortunately, many times when we study this book, 
our focus tends to be on the nature of those judgments and of the various individuals that are involved in that. I've sat and I've listened to multiple messages, quite honestly, on uh, who is the Antichrist. I've, this is a, a, an area of personal study for me. And so you, when you go back through time, there are so many individuals that have been pointed to as the potential Antichrist. And I would dare say, and we won't necessarily name names this morning, but you could probably think of various individuals today within both our political system and within our, our, our global economy that some would suggest could be the Antichrist. So when we read the book of the Revelation, many times our minds get derailed into the, 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 the hypothetical facts or, or the, 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 the prophetic facts of the book. And we forget that the primary purpose of the book is actually bound within this first couple verses. John starts the book by saying simply this. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of the Revelation is not a, a book which merely gives us a time frame for future events or a timeline. The primary purpose of the book is to unveil or, or to, to, to expose an individual. Christ is the center point in the book. Chapter 1, you have the unveiling of Jesus Christ as it relates to the New Testament church today. So when you read chapter 1, you, you see the, 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 the character of our Savior expressly communicated both through literal um, elements of his character and also through figurative language which speaks of, of the magnitude of his beauty. We have a second revelation of Jesus Christ found in, in chapters 4 and chapters 5. And this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ as it relates to his coming judgment. We have the great worship scene. I would suggest probably one of my favorite chapters. 4 and 5 as they communicate the worship seat before the throne of God. And this this lamb as a lion that has been slain that steps forth and he's the only one who is worthy to take the seal and to loose it. And I think that scroll that is being spoken of there that is covered with seven seals speaks of the title deed of the earth. And this is this great scene where Christ rises up and really reclaims that which is his. There's a third revelation of Jesus Christ that's found within the book, and this is really in our passage here, Revelation 19. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ as it relates to those who are unbelievers. Go ahead and follow with me. I'm going to begin reading verse 11. And I'll read down through the end of the chapter. John writes the following, verse 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and him that sat on it was called Faithful and True. In a righteousness he does judge and wages war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and upon his head were, were many diadem. And he has a name written upon him, which no man knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, 
in order that you may eat of the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. The beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were cast, um, were thrown alive in the lake of fire which, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came out of the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now I'm not sure what your emotional response is after reading that particular passage. But your emotion that you should feel right now is one of great weight. Without question, this is one of the most serious, one of the weightiest, one of the most solemn uh, passages of Scripture. Communicates really the second coming of Christ. If you'll allow me just for a moment to set this within a context of a time frame. I would be a pre-tribulationalist and a premillennialist, which would simply mean that I believe that believers in Jesus Christ will be raptured out of this earth at a point in time. That we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And I believe that that rapture could take place at any point in time. I believe it could take place, Lord willing, before I'm done. Uh, my father passed away last week. I performed his funeral on Saturday. And as I stood over his casket, I reminded all of us that that body which was in that, 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 that wooden box at one day would rise and it will join him in the heavens. And at that point in time, I will join him if the rapture were to take place in my lifetime and in our lifetime. So the rapture will take place and after that rapture will come a time of judgment as we've already noted to find us the tribulation. I believe that's going to be a literal seven-year period. I think it will be a time both of great judgment and at the same time of great evangelistic outreach. And uh, time does not allow us, but I think we could validate that through both the reading of the book of the Revelation and throughout Old Testament passages. Revelation 19 brings us to the end of that tribulation period. The rapture is not the second coming of Christ. Christ does not come back and set his feet on this earth, but the church is taken away. This is the second coming of Christ. This is the event which Paul echoes in 1 Corinthians 11 that we proclaim His death until He comes. Now He's coming. So we study the passage this morning. I'm going to do this in just a very simplistic way if you'll allow me to. Even as I read it, you noted certain things as good readers of the Scriptures. You notice that there are four names that are given for Christ within this particular passage. That there are three ways which He is described physically. That there are two weapons which he was carrying and that there was one purpose for his coming. So as we walk through the passage, all we're going to do is just note the four names, the three descriptions, the two weapons, the one purpose. And then at the end, we'll just deal with some lessons for the marketplace. What, what do we do with this particular passage? Even as I read the passage, no doubt you noted that there were four names that were given here. And I find that a bit curious Obviously, John describes him merely as the white rider, he who was riding upon the white horse. 
But it's clear, fairly clear within the context that this indeed is the Christ, the Messiah. So why was there a necessity for four names to be given? If I were to stand up this morning, or even as pastor, as he introduced me, if he were to say, this is Brian Trainer, this is Dean Trainer, this is Dr. Trainer, this is Sherry Trainer's husband, which is actually my favorite title of all, this is the son of John and Patty Trainer. Now, if he would have gone through all of that, most of you would have sat there and kind of scratched your heads and said, all right, pastor, we get it. It's the guy sitting there. All right, so let's move on. Why all of the names? Well, the only reason to give multiple names is if there's significance to each one of those names. And I would suggest to you that in Revelation 19 that the four names are not given merely for repetition's sake but they're given to add weight to the passage because of the significance of what they express. Let's look at them. First name is actually given in verse 11, and simply this. He who sat upon this horse is called Faithful and True, and I would take that as a combined singular name. So the question that we ask this morning is simply this. Why would the first name be Faithful and True? If I can set the frame here. The armies of the, of the earth are gathered together in the valley of Megiddo. The heavens will open. I believe that the earth will turn on its axis for 24 hours and all of the eyes upon those on earth will look up and they will see this white rider. And what they will recognize is this is the one who is faithful and true. So again, why would this name be the first name? Stop and think about it in two different contexts. One, within the context in which even John was writing. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us that even in the era of the early church, there were those that were questioning this, the second coming of Christ. They were, in essence, rhetorically and sarcastically asking, where is the promise of His coming? All things continue today as they've always been. Now, what that communicates to us is that one of the significant messages of the early church was that Christ was returning. Christ was returning. And this was communicated with such regularity that unbelievers heard this message and they said, hey, where is this Christ you're talking about? Decades have gone by and He still hasn't returned. Don't you realize, believers, you're just you're victims of a great hoax? Your Savior isn't returning. Now think about us today. 2016. This is not merely decades. Now we're into two millennium since the promise of Christ's return. You don't have to obviously respond to this, but can I just ask a simple question? Have you ever pondered in your own mind whether you're the victim of a great hoax? Have you ever wondered, is Christ really going to return? I do, do we really have this book right when Christ said He was going to return, can, can we bank on this? And when the angels in Acts chapter 1 said that this same Jesus which was taken up from you shall so come in like manner, were they speaking literally? Have you ever pondered that within your own mind? Can I simply say this? When Christ does return, the first thing that we will recognize is that He's faithful and that He's true. 
I realize this is figurative language, but even the author, James, says that a thousand years are but a day to the Lord and a, a, a day but a thousand years. It's two millennium. Two days. Is that too long for Christ to wait? Just two days? When Christ does come back, He'll proclaim Himself as faithful and true. And I'll simply say this. We can bank on His return. I think His name is given here from an initial perspective to give us confidence that when Christ says He will return, He will return. And that from a waiting perspective, it's it's not an anxious waiting. It's an excited waiting because we know it will happen just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. So the second name that's given for Christ, and the second name is actually found in verse 13. The second name, I'm sorry, is is found in verse 12. And the second name is this. There's a name that no one knows but himself. I find this to be the most unique or curious of all the names. Here, John looks up and he sees this white writer and he says he has a name that's an unknown name that no one knows but himself. Now, immediately, we, we ask the question, well, if no one can know the name but himself, why is it even noted for us? That's like someone walking up to you and saying, hey, I have a secret. And what's your very first response? What is it? Tell it to me. I promise I won't tell anybody else. Well, here's Christ saying, uh, I have an unknown name. And no one's going to know it except he himself. I think faithful and true is an evidence of the character of our Christ, of this white writer. I think, think this, I think this unknown name is an evidence of the deity of the white writer. He's altogether different than you and I are. There are certain things that only he will know because only he is God. I've worked in Christian colleges for many years and uh, anytime you teach about end times, there's always someone in the room that would say something like this, I can't wait till I get to heaven because then I'll know everything. Have you ever thought that? Can I simply say this? Even when we get to heaven, we still won't know everything. We still won't be God. There will be certain things that are reserved for the throne room. And through all of eternity, though we will study Him, we'll never reach the immeasurable wisdom and knowledge of our God. I think this second name is an indication of His deity. It's the third name that's given. The third name found at the end of verse 13 where it simply says he's the Word of God. And I can't help but think that when John saw this white rider, immediately he stopped and he said, I know him. That's the Word. We can't help but reflect upon the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. I can't help but think that when John saw this white rider, he said, That's the Word. I know Him. I've touched Him. I've handled Him. I've spoken to Him. I think this third name that's given is an indication of the humanity of this white writer. This same Jesus which was taken shall so come in like manner. He's still the Word that was enfleshed just like you or I. So we have the character of the white rider revealed. We have the deity of the white rider revealed. We have the humanity of the white rider revealed. And then finally, the fourth name is found at the end of verse 16 where it simply says, and his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And I think that communicates the sovereignty of the white rider. He is the only King of Kings. He is the only Lord of Lords. Four names given for us. And those four names, I think each one will point us to a different aspect of this returning white rider. Three things that are used to describe him. And we see those three things really beginning in verse 12. It says this, And his eyes were as a flame of fire. What's that an indication of? And obviously I think that's figurative language there. His eyes were like unto a flame of fire. I think what that is communicating is primarily the purpose of his coming. The recognition that this King of kings and Lord of lords, he sees all. And because he has seen all, he has the right to judge all. The second description that is given. The second description is merely that upon his head are many diadems. Now again, we have to stop and and, and visualize this for a moment. Is John asking us to to, to, to visualize a rider upon a horse that has multiple crowns stacked upon his head? I don't think that's really the picture. I think that the comparison that John is making here is between the multiple kings throughout the book of the Revelation that would rise to positions of power and then they would be put back down. It's interesting, when one reads the book of the Revelation, you see kings with three crowns, you see kings with ten crowns, but only one king has many crowns. And it's this king. If the eyes communicate that he has seen all, I think the crowns communicate that he is Lord of all. The eyes communicate that he has the, 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 the knowledge to judge. The crowns communicate that he has the right to judge. Then there's a third way that he's described, and the third way is simply this. We see this in verse 13. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Two different potential interpretations or understandings of this robe dipped in blood. Some suggest that the blood is an indication of the blood that was shed on Calvary, similar to the cup which we'll drink of this morning. Others suggest that the blood is proleptic or or prophetic. That's an indication of the blood that will be shed as he goes into the valley of Megiddo. I would suggest that the second understanding is probably more accurate for this particular context. This context is not providing an opportunity for salvation. It's communicating the reality of judgment. I believe that this robe will be dipped in blood and it's an indication of those that look upon him that he's coming to shed blood. He has seen all. He is ruler over all. He will judge all. Four names indicate who he is. Three ways which he is described. Two weapons are noted. The two weapons are noted in really verse 15. It says, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. Let me address the second one first. This rod of iron, I believe, is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2. It speaks of an iron maul. And that is the, the, the iron maw or the rod in which he will rule the nations throughout the time of his kingdom, which we would call the millennial kingdom or a thousand years of Christ sitting upon the Davidic throne and ruling the nations. 
that is not the primary weapon of choice for this particular scene. The weapon that is noted more than once is this sword that's proceeding out of his mouth. And again, let's visualize just for a moment here. Does John want us to imagine that the rider is riding a horse and that there's a sword coming out of his mouth and as he's riding, the sword is kind of bouncing up and down? Most of us would say, no, that would be almost a silly or a comical scene. I would concur with you. So what is this sword that's proceeding out of his mouth? Let's just stop for a moment and let's go all the way back to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember, and there's this wonderful moment in the Garden of Gethsemane that sometimes we read over far too quickly. <clears throat> the Lord is praying with his disciples. He separates with his three. He then separates by himself, prays with the intensity so that his sweat is like great drops of blood that are perspiring from his brow. There's movement in the distance. Judas the betrayer comes up, lays on the betrayer's kiss. And following Judas are the high priest and all of their guards. Some would suggest that the contingency is maybe four to 600 individuals. They come out of the shadows. Christ is standing alone. His disciples are behind him in the shadows. And Christ just very kindly says, Who are you seeking? And one of them says, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Christ responds simply by saying this. Ego eimi. Two little Greek words. Translated in the English, I am he. Do you remember what happens? They all fall down. Now, we have to imagine the pause that's taking place there. We can't read it within our text. But there had to be a period of time in which Christ, in essence, stepped back into the shadows and allowed these hundreds of individuals, chief priests included, to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, line themselves back up. And once that is done, Christ once again steps forward and says, Who are you seeking? One of them probably very bravely said, Jesus of Nazareth, and probably braced himself for a moment. And Christ at that point simply responded with the same two words, Ego me, I am he. But at this point, he withheld the power of his words. I think the scene is given to us to communicate that Christ gave himself willingly. It's almost as if the very first time he let just a little bit just a little bit of his power out of his words. And they drop to the ground. The second time he stops and he pulls that back and he allows himself submissively to go to the cross. What is this sword that's proceeding out of the mouth of this writer? Well, we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, that he will slay them with the breath of his mouth. Sometimes when we picture this, this battle of Megiddo, we picture tanks and, and missiles lined up, and as Christ is coming down, somehow there is a battle that takes place. Can I suggest for us this morning that there is no battle of Armageddon? The enemies of Christ will be scattered throughout all of Israel. The white rider will come back. He will set his foot upon the Mount of Olives. It will split wide open and he will speak the word. And when he speaks the word, they will melt before him. 
Let me go back. I rarely do I use illustrations out of America's cinematography, but this is 25 years old or more. So if you've ever watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, dates you just a little bit. But if you remember the scene where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is open and, and these, these angels come out of the Ark of the Covenant and they look like angels of light and suddenly they turn into angels of death and the Nazis that are standing around just begin to shrink away into little pools of blood there. If you've ever wondered where Steven Spielberg got that imagery, go to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12. Because what it says in Zechariah 14, 12 is that when the Savior comes back, when the Messiah comes back and saves the city of Jerusalem, that they will melt away. Their eyes will melt away in their sockets. Their tongues will melt away in their mouths. And their flesh will melt off their body. I think what Steven Spielberg was doing there was simply communicating visually what will happen in the Valley of Megiddo. Christ will speak the word and his enemies will melt before him. Four names which indicate the character of the white rider. Three ways that he's described which communicate his purpose and coming. Two weapons which communicate the instruments of his judgment. One purpose and coming. And the one purpose and coming is actually communicated for us in verse 11. And it says this, in righteousness he judges and wages war. Nations throughout all of time argue what is a just war. What are the right reasons to go to war? And here Christ communicates the ultimate right reason to go to war. To judge sin. In righteousness, he wages war. Now, that's the story. The conclusion of it, we read. Verse 21. And the birds were filled with the flesh of those that opposed the lamb. What do we do with this story? In what way does this prompt us toward action? Prophecy ultimately is not given for our curiosity, but it's given for, our, 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 for imperatives of life. Can I suggest some lessons for the marketplace to meditate on before we go to the Lord's Supper? Number one, I'll simply say this. Jesus Christ is the center of world history. Thus, He should be the center of our lives. What I've just described via the text of Scripture is the recognition of who our Savior is. And when we see our Savior revealed in this way, our response to that, which should be one of, of, of just humility, submission. This is our God. This is the center of all, of all human events. Since He's the center of all human events, should He not be the center of our lives? Who in the world, what in the world, should rival Him within the context of the throne room of our hearts? He and He alone should be on that throne. Second lesson for the marketplace is I'll simply say this, is Jesus Christ has an intense hatred for sin. Thus, we must not coddle it. If we want to know what Christ thinks of sin... This is it. 
He speaks the word. And sinners melt before Him. And at times there's something within me that says, Lord, this just doesn't seem fair. I've spent multiple years of my life in China, and I'll be heading back in about ten days or so. And as I go into the southern regions of China, and I I look upon the mountains, upon villages of villages of Chinese that have never heard the gospel, I stop and I say, Lord, are you going to judge them the same way that you judge Americans that have ready access to the gospel? And at times I, I, I wrestle in my mind about whether God is fair in doing that. Then I'm reminded, even as we looked at in Sunday school this morning, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day into day utter speech and night into night showeth knowledge. That they have access to the gospel also. And that God is justified in judging all sin. The only thing that keeps Him from judging my sin is His grace and mercy found in the cross. I can't coddle sin. This is the way that Christ views it third lesson for the marketplace would simply be this. The material aspect of this world is sure to pass away, thus we must not treasure it. There's nothing wrong with the tools and the gifts that God gives us, but ultimately, those homes and those cars and those boats and all those toys, they're going to burn with everything else. They're not treasures for the heart. They're tools for the kingdom. Fourth thing I would simply say by way of lessons for the marketplace, and that is the sorrow of this life will come to an end. Thus we must endure it. What this tells me is that there will be a terminus. There will be an end point. And at that end point, the king will come back and he'll sit upon his rightful throne. There will be sorrow up until that day. But that sorrow can be endured when I know what the end result is. And the end result is the king is returning. Fifth lesson for the marketplace is simply this. Those without Christ are sure to be judged. Thus we must warn them. The reality is, is that the scene that we just looked at this morning could take place seven years from now. That means that your co-workers, your unsafe family members, your neighbors could be at this scene. But they could be on the wrong side of judgment. This scene is a motivation for us to be engaged in proclamation of the gospel. Because it communicates the, the surety of judgment. It places within me the, the imperative to share Christ as Savior before they meet Him as Christ as judge. And finally, I simply say this. The final victory is secure. Thus, we can rejoice. We celebrate this table this morning with joy. We celebrate it until the Lord comes. Because when He comes, we will be with Him. And we will rejoice. And at that time, we will celebrate this with Him in the kingdom. And that be our, our reflection and our meditation this morning as we take communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the promise that your death is not the end of the game. That your resurrection provides for us eternal life. And that your second coming secures a kingdom 
in an eternity. Father, may we proclaim your death this morning until you come. May be the passion of our hearts, and we'll give you thanks in your name. Amen.